Good. I want to thank Brian for last week for filling in. I was at the dedication of my third grandson over in Redlands, so that was exciting. Little guy getting dedicated to the Lord. Uh, I did notice, though, that Francesca's pregnancy got more applause than my birthday. I'm a little, I guess as it should be, right? Uh, so Christmas is just around the corner. We would have Thanksgiving coming, right? Christine and I put up our lights outside already, so we're ahead of the game. Uh, so next week, we begin our Advent series, next Sunday. The plan is to go through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke during this Christmas season, looking at not a Christmas story, but the Christmas story. And that's going to be, just for give everybody a heads up, we're not canceling church for Christmas. You know, Christmas is on a Sunday. We'll be here, and we'll even be here the night before for Christmas Eve. So we got six, counting Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, we have six Sundays, and we'll be going through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. So mark your calendars and try to be here if you can. And that would be a good time, as I said a couple weeks ago, that'd be a good time to invite someone. Again, Daniel's kind of hard, as we'll see as we conclude today. Uh, If you're new, if you've never read the Bible before, this is a difficult one to start with. But uh, we're going to, this is the final message in our series through the book of Daniel. So turn with me in your Bibles to the last chapter, chapter 12. Now in preparation for Daniel 12, I want us to think about this fact. We live in a time when people believe, a time and a place really, the United States, where people believe almost everything is fixable. If you're not feeling well, uh, take a pill. If your teeth aren't straight, get braces. If you don't like your body, try a little cosmetic surgery. If your job is unfulfilling, search the net for better opportunities. If you can't get along with your spouse, get a new one. Whatever your problem is, we've been conditioned to believe that someone out there has the answer that will fix it. This is true on both a personal level and a global level. Whether the problem is global climate change, world poverty, oppressive governments, we human beings think in some way, someday, somehow, to quote the Beatles, we can work it out. And sometimes on a micro level, we can. We can have small victories. Things sometimes do work out. But historically and biblically, the trajectory of our world is unfortunately downward. We thought the Cold War with its threat of nuclear holocaust was over in the 80s, if you were alive then. (laughs) But just this week, with missiles killing two in Poland, the the fear of World War III sort of resurfaced for for a time. Now, on a human level, there are certainly explanations for our downward trajectory. Greed, uh, fear, pride, humanity, sin, nature, just to name a few. But the Bible also teaches, if you remember back a few weeks ago in Daniel chapter 10 and in other places, that the real problem goes beyond the natural. We've looked at this verse several times in our series, but let me quote Paul from Ephesians 6, 12, one final time. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against, but against rulers, 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are real, actual, supernatural forces of evil. Satan and his demons are real. They have power and influence in our world. And in our own efforts, we can do nothing about them. No amount of education, activism, governmental reform will ever fix this evil. However, never doubt that God, not humanity, will one day fix everything. God will eliminate all evil in the end. In Revelation 21, we, those who trust in the Lord, are promised that in the end He will wipe every tear from their eyes There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. One day, by God's power and on His schedule, suffering and death will end. We will be transformed, and our pain and tears will be wiped away. But in His wisdom, God has yet to usher in that day. And until He does... The reality is that pain and suffering and sorrow, oppression, persecution, mourning, and death will continue to be a part of this world's experience. Now, if you've been with us in our study through the book of Daniel, who's been here for all 18 messages? We got two. We got a couple up there. That's great. I should give you a gift certificate to the Bundt Cake store. No, I'm just kidding. I thank Amber for that. Amber, uh, she brought those bunt cakes on our cakewalk day. What, 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 what were we doing that day? Church barbecue. And I got hooked on the, the bunt cake. So anyway, uh, so if you've been with us through our study in the book of Daniel, uh, this uh, idea of the, the, uh, the uh, painful, sinful experience of this world should not come as a surprise. The suffering of God's people, who are exiles in this world, has been a theme throughout. And it's front and center as the book draws to a close. Remember, the final chapter is part of God's answer to Daniel's fasting and prayer for the suffering of his people. I mean, the, perp, the point, the reason this is happening is because God's people are suffering. It had been three years since many Jews had returned to Jerusalem from their exile after they had been captured and kidnapped and taken away to Babylon. So three years ago, from the time chapter 12, chapter 10 through 12 is written, uh, they'd returned to rebuild their temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But progress was slow and difficult because of the powerful opposition they faced from the people who were in the land and around the land. And as a result, the people, the people of God, had started to despair. And as we saw in chapters 10 and 11, in response to Daniel's concern for his people, Daniel's still back in Babylon, he's in his 80s, similar to me, no, just kidding, Uh, God sent his glorious messenger, one who in a prophetic vision revealed the future of Daniel's people, a future that would include, you'd hope I'd say, glory and riches and wonder, but it says even worse difficulty and oppression. That's the vision. Be encouraged, Daniel. It could and will get worse before it gets better. Now for us, Daniel's prophetic vision of the future is mostly history, 
Many details can be linked to known historical people and events. Events that stretch from when the vision begins, 536 B.C., when Daniel was actually alive and Cyrus the Great ruled the Medo-Persian Empire, all the way to 64 B.C., when Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled the Seleucid Empire and oppressed brutally and persecuted the people of God, met his end, died. So that's sort of the historical part that we can grasp, and we did as we walked through the vision. But following Antiochus, at the end of chapter 11, if you remember from two weeks ago, the vision focuses on uh, what seems to be a different ruler, one uh, we called a conceited, contemptuous king. And with this king, the vision becomes uh, less historically clear. Who this ruler is, or when he lives, or uh, are somewhat mysterious and debated by Bible scholars. We talked about this two weeks ago. Some believe the king continues to be Antiochus, while others believe that even though this king shares many of Antiochus's evil qualities, he is in fact the Antichrist who will rise at the end of history. And so, as we come to the end of the book, I want to remind us of what I've said all along. When we come to difficult to understand uh, debated passages, I'll try to explain my thoughts from my time of study, my prayer, on their meaning, but we'll continue to focus, we'll continue to make application on what is clear, not what is complex. What I found as I studied this passage is that no matter who the king is, no matter when he lives or lived or whatever, at the end of chapter 11, and no matter when uh, he lived, this does not affect our response. It does not affect how we are to live faithfully today. And that brings us to the beginning of chapter 12. And what I want to do is walk through this chapter, seeking to understand not just the vision that continues, has its third and final part, as we'll see, but the lessons that God has for us in the vision, this vision of the end. And the first lessons are found by looking at the end. He sort of jumps to the end, right? We briefly looked at the first three verses of chapter 12 last week, but today I want to examine them a little bit closer. We need to remember that the beginning of chapter 12, in case you didn't realize this, follows the end of chapter 11. Anybody know, know that? And, and the Bible didn't have chapters, and so, uh, I mean, the original, Daniel didn't put chapters and verses in, so really, probably chapter, the chapter 12 should just continue on. And at the end of chapter 11, uh, it describes the end, the demise of this conceited, contemptuous king. And in that context, chapter 12 begins. At that time, the time of this king, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince. Uh, and we've learned earlier, he's, sort of, he's an angel, an angelic spiritual force who has charge over your people. Apparently, Michael's in charge of God's people, the Jewish people, we're not sure. And there shall be, ready for some more encouragement, Michael, he's coming, a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till the time. More good news, right? Again, the future, the, in the future, the difficulty will continue to increase. But at that time, so here comes the good news, 
Your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So it seems at the time of this king, there will be a major time of difficulty for God's people. Some believe, again, this is speaking of the, uh, the past history, the time of Antiochus, while others believe it's speaking of a future uh, tribulation. But in either case, the lesson is this. No matter when this unprecedented time of trouble has or will take place, God's people, those whose name is found written in the book, and this book is the, the Lamb's book of life, we've looked at this before, will not be left alone. Michael, God's angel, will deliver them. God's, uh, as God's representative, Michael will deliver the people of God. And this should be an encouraging lesson for us just right off the bat. No matter what trouble we face in this life, no matter how unfixable our world or our circumstances seem, there will come a day when God will intervene and we will be delivered. That's the good news. Here's the bad news, maybe. You want to take it that way. That day may not come until uh, you die. In fact, that seems to be likely since the vision continues by speaking of the resurrection of the dead. Verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn away to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This describes the final, ultimate deliverance from our troubles. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, God's book, the Lamb's book of life, those who are wise, synonymous with, same people, will shine like stars forever. They'll rise to everlasting life in glory, while the others will rise to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, with the opening of, 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 the, the, of, with the opening of the book of life, talked about in verse 1, and this resurrection scene in verses 2 and 3, this seems to point to the final judgment, a time when the faithful will receive their eternal reward and the unfaithful, their everlasting contempt. This corresponds to what John wrote about this final judgment in the book of Revelations. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So for Daniel, so for me, Daniel chapter 12, 1 through 3, sets these final events in Daniel's vision at the end of history. But no matter when these events take place, the lesson for believers who are called wise is this. Be encouraged. Even in your times of trouble, even if you face death, because your ultimate deliverance is coming. Your death means your deliverance. Maybe easy to remember. Think about that in times of trouble. Worst case scenario, your death means your deliverance, your resurrection unto everlasting life, unto eternal glory. And the lesson for the unbeliever is this, be aware that you too will face eternity. And if you continue down the path of unbelief, lack of wisdom, if you will, shame, eternal contempt, eternal disdain is what you will experience. Okay? Then following 
Verse 3, there's a break in the vision, and Daniel receives this instruction and warning. First, the instruction. But you, Daniel, shut up the words, of, uh, words and seal the book until the time of the end. Again, this shutting up of the book, we've seen it uh, before, was not a matter of keeping the words hidden. It's not like, uh, hide this so nobody can read it, which is, clearly didn't happen because we're reading it but rather of storing them safely for uh, wise future generations of God's people, possibly to the end of time, to read and understand. Because of the warning, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Is that good or bad? What does that sound like to you? Well, the word knowledge... Uh, could be translated cunning, awareness. In verse 4, I believe it's set in contrast to the word wisdom in verse 3. The Lord was telling Daniel that in the, in the time of the end, whenever that is, people will seek knowledge in all kinds of places, running to and fro. I, I get the, the vision of like chickens with their heads cut off. And yes, their knowledge will increase. They, they will know more stuff, more facts, more figures. But but this will not increase their wisdom, which only comes from God. God's people know where to find true wisdom, from God himself, from the word of God, but the wicked search for it in vain. Now this knowledge-seeking certainly describes our own age, doesn't it? People are running to and fro, going from place to place, seeking and increasing in knowledge, because becoming more knowledgeable, more educated, becoming experts, if you will, but sorely lacking in wisdom from God. Probably every one of us has an illustration of this, uh, of this difference between knowledge and wisdom on our person right now. Any guesses what it is? Where'd it go? I got one over there. A smartphone. Think about the knowledge needed to create this amazing device, right? A device that itself can provide us with uh, instant knowledge on practically limitless numbers of subjects. Hey Siri, hey Alexa, whatever. What, what's this? Everyone knows... Well, wait, sorry. So, we have this instrument of knowledge, right? It, it, it took lots of knowledge to make and it gives knowledge. But do we... Does our society have the wisdom to know when to use such a device, when to use such knowledge? If you talk to any high school teacher, which I talk to lots of them, including my wife, the answer is certainly no. Many would say the number one problem with our current education system is the ubiquitous nature of smartphones. Everyone knows, educational leaders, uh, experts know they're a distraction to learning and a hindrance to social development. We've acquired the knowledge to produce this thing, but we don't have the wisdom to know how to use it. Okay, so that's my tirade on smartphones. Done. But the lesson is that in our day, like in the days of Daniel's vision, knowledge, not wisdom, will increase. And therefore, we must seek application. Lesson here, we must seek God, not our culture, not our so-called experts, for the wisdom we need to live faithfully in this fallen world. So in these first verses of chapter 12, we've looked at the end, 
We've seen that there will be a frantic search for knowledge, but wisdom will be lacking. But more importantly, we've seen that seen and been encouraged by the fact that all will be set right. Okay? All will be set right. In the end, God, not humanity, not mankind, will work it out, will fix it. He will deliver His people, the wise, from the trouble. He will deliver them to everlasting life in His presence. Hallelujah. Amen. That's the joy. But that's not the end of the vision. Because the question comes. Point two, how long until the end? So we've seen the end. Now how long to get there? Look at, look at me at verses 5, then 6. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the bank of the stream. I don't know why they're on the streams, and I'm not going to talk about that. So apparently, though, there are two, two more angels apparently show up. And somehow... And excuse me, and someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, so they addressed the man clothed in linen. This is the messenger that we began this vision with, the one sent to Daniel. They asked, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? In context, backing up a few verses, what we've just seen, the wonders they're referring to are, the, are both the unprecedented time of trouble followed by the deliverance, the final resurrection. So apparently, even the angels are unaware of these history-ending events, at least all, some of them. They want to know how long until the end, how long until God will set all things right. So they, they're observing this whole thing, this whole, I mean, this is, even in Daniel's day, the history of the world is terrible. The wars and the deaths and the, the uh, destruction that's taken place. And they're saying, how long until God will set all things right? And isn't that the question we often ask? Maybe not about the end of history, but certainly about the end of our, our personal times of trouble. We ask, how long until I'm delivered from my troubles? How long must I endure this trial? We may ask the question because we're experiencing personal difficulties. How long must I endure this sickness, this pain, this trouble? Or we may ask because our society is becoming increasingly godless, faithless, and sinful. We may echo Jesus' words about his own generation. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I may be wrong, but I don't think our generation is any more faithful than, Jesus, than the generation of Jesus' day. We clearly live in troubled times. They may not be a, a time of trouble such as never been, but they are troubled nonetheless. In our, in our world, a church service or a school classroom can be interrupted by crazed gunmen. Innocent children can be abducted from their beds. They can even be murdered. Men and women training to serve and protect can be mowed down on a street. Cancer ravages the body of believers and unbelievers alike. And the list goes on of the, the troubles in this world. And as we've seen, the book of Daniel, not to mention the rest of the Bible, never promises that life in this world will be trouble-free, will be easy. On the contrary, Daniel's prophetic visions clearly show that trouble, difficulty, trial, sorrow, suffering will continue till the end of history. 
So if you're waiting for everything to be okay, uh, you're waiting in vain. And therefore, the people of God will continue to cry out, How long, O Lord? How long must we bear with this faithless generation? Why are your people dying and, and despairing? Why are they not prospering? Why are not, they not experiencing victory? How long do you think we can hold out? When will, all this, when will you set all things right? How long until the end? And as time goes by, and this world continues its downward, downward spiral, we might be tempted to give in to despair and assume that because things continue to get worse, they'll never get better. We may even be tempted to try and dull our pain through whatever pleasure and comforts we can find in this world, looking, looking to make the best of a bad situation. This is certainly the response to many in our world, right? And unfortunately, some in the church. They become jaded and, and doubt a God who allows this evil world to continue. But that's not the wise response. It's not the lesson we've learned or will continue to learn from the book of Daniel. This book again and again acknowledges the fact that, as Jesus said, in this world there will be trouble. There will continue to be difficulty until the end. But this is not the end. Jesus has overcome this world. And we see that reflected in Daniel with the promise of deliverance for those who trust in the Lord till the end. So again, the lesson, the wise response is in the midst of your troubles, trust in the Lord for your eternal deliverance. No matter how long it takes, no matter how long until the end, remain faithful to the one who provides your eternal deliverance from the suffering in this world. And that takes us to verse 7, where we find a specific answer of, of sorts to the question of how long. And not coincidentally, this specific answer is linked to the suffering of God's people still. Verse 7, And I heard the man clothed in linen, linen, what is that? He's got a bunch of linen, I'm just kidding. Clothed in linen, my mouth is not working well today. Who was above the wall, because I'm 59, yesterday I was 58, it was fine. Now I'm 59. So next year when I'm 60, it could be really bad, right? Okay, sorry. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters in the stream. This is the glorious holy messenger that had been given the vision to Daniel all along. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. So posture of worship, honoring God, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. So the specific answer Swear to God, right? The specific answer which the angel gives to how long till the end of these wonders, deliverance from this time of trouble, is time, time, and half a time. Now, I want to remind us that the same time frame was used in relation to Daniel's vision in chapter 7, if you remember. It referred to how long the people of God would suffer under the fourth beast, if you remember the four beasts, I'm not going to go back there, but if you remember, uh, like the identity of the king in chapter 11, the identity of the fourth beast, the, if you remember the little horn that had, 
got more powerful, had eyes and a mouth of chapter 7. They're both sort of much debated. Maybe the same person. So his identity, uh, is it, is it, was it a past king like Antiochus Epiphanes or could it be the future Antichrist spoken of in Revelation? Whatever the answer, like chapter 7, verse 7 of Daniel 11 links the time frame to the suffering of God's people. So uh, back then it was how long are we going to suffer under this little horn guy? And now it's, it's going to be, let's read it, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders, time, time, and half time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all things would be finished. So the messenger gives two answers to how long. A time frame, time, time, and half a times, and we'll look at that shortly. But he also gives a sign answer. When this happens, the end will come. And the end of these wonders will occur when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. Now, this doesn't seem very comforting, right? Or what we might even expect. We might expect the end to come when the power of the wicked people has finally been shattered, when the wicked witch is melted and everything is good. Not the shattering of the power of the holy people. Basically, the messenger is saying the end of these wonders, the end of this great time of trouble and the deliverance of God's people will happen when the power of the holy people is shattered which says that as the end approaches, there will be continuing persecution and suffering and oppression of God's people. But there will, there will come a breaking, a shattering point, which will mean the end. Again, not extremely comforting, unless you understand the purpose of the shattering. And that's what we find as the vision continues. Verse 8, Daniel says, I heard, but I... I didn't understand. Daniel doesn't seem to understand the answer to the question, how long till the end of these wonders? Uh, Maybe, I don't know, does he get time, time, and time, times, and half times? I don't think so. Uh, And what about the shattering? What what are you talking about? The shattering of the power of God's holy people. So he asks a similar question. Then I asked Daniel, remember the first question is asked by angels. Now this is Daniel's question. Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Not only how long, but how will these things take place? And and what will be the result of the shattering be? Verse 9, he, the messenger, said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Well, thank you very much. He seems to be saying something like he said in verse 4. You're not really going to fully understand this because this vision is for the time of the end. And yet he continues to provide answers in verse 10. What shall the outcome of these things, the shattering of the holy people be? Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Here in verse 10, we find the reason for the shattering of the power of the holy people. The messenger tells Daniel that there will be a continuing persecution to purify and refine the wise and continuing wickedness on part of the wicked. And that certainly corresponds to what we see in our world throughout history. The wicked continue to act wickedly with no real understanding of what they're doing. 
have no real understanding even of history. They continue to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And the wise, those who trust in the Lord, those who stand for God and against the wicked, will face oppression and persecution. So that's the wicked are going to continue to be wicked, and the wise are going to continue to be persecuted. Hooray! You know? And that's what we've seen. That's what we see in history. But by God's grace, and through their choosing to face difficulty instead of rejecting the Lord, they purify themselves. James says something similar. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The lesson is this. Trials of various kinds, the shattering of the power of the holy people, produces steadfastness, purity, refinement. Now, this is not a lesson that most people want to hear. Because it means that, that when you face suffering, our goal is not escape, but to rejoice. To rejoice in what God is doing through the suffering. Suffering, trials, sorrows, pain in this life is not just a, something uh, uh, that the evil one puts upon us that we must endure Suffering has a God-given purpose for our lives. And Daniel is telling us that because of that, suffering, shattering of the people of God, will continue to the end. This is the way it goes. This is part of what it means to, to live this life. This is part of what it means to be, be a believer, a, a, a child of God. The sign of the end is not the final fixing of our world's problems. It's the final shattering, purification, refinement of the holy people's power. It's the purification through trials and suffering of God's people that will usher in the end. The blood of the martyrs, if you will. Now this, again, may sound paradoxical, but in His great wisdom... God uses trials and suffering and sorrow for His glory and for our good. We need to understand that God is always thinking about, you know, not that I'm inside God's head or anything, but His focus, His understanding is everything. And so He, he is thinking about the eternal picture. He sees from the beginning to the end, to eternity, and therefore he knows what is best for you and I right now. But the world's wisdom, which we so often uh, fall prey to, is only focused on the present, the here and now. Eternity does not come into consideration. Therefore, they, they say we must avoid suffering Run from suffering. Don't ever put yourself in any kind of position to experience suffering and get what you can right now. This is it. Put simply, God's wisdom is not the wisdom of this world. And in God's wisdom, the way in which our faith is purified and refined, the way we are prepared for eternity is through fiery trials. As the Apostle Peter reminds us, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
in a mysterious way, maybe not so mysterious for those who've experienced trials and, and have come out of them, them stronger in their faith. The trials we face, the trials that, that come from the wickedness of this world even, the oppression, the greed, they refine our faith and they demonstrate the genuineness of our faith, resulting in not our glory, but praise, glory, and honor for Christ as He's revealed in our lives. So Daniel's asked, Oh my Lord, what, what shall be the outcome of these things? What, what's gonna, what is this shattering of the holy people? What's, what's that going to look like? And the angel has given a partial answer. The full answer is sealed up, but those who are wise through the purifying fires of persecution will understand. And then beginning in verse 11, the angel adds this. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Okay, so what's going on here? Okay, we're down the home stretch of Daniel. Well, the first part of verse 11, uh, from the taking away of the regular burnt offering to the abomination that makes desolate is similar to what we saw in chapter 11, and, and we related it specifically to Antiochus Epiphanes. If you remember, forces from him, Antiochus, shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. If you remember, Antiochus stopped the daily sacrifices at the temple and substituted, among other things he did, the sacrifice of unclean swine. That's pigs, for those of you who weren't in 4-H and don't know what a swine is. Anyway, but what we have in Daniel 12 does not seem to refer to Antiochus. In fact, it really can't refer to Antiochus because Antiochus died... In 164 B.C., before Christ, not before this common era mumbo-jumbo. Okay, he died 164 years before Christ came. And in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus said, So when you see, so he's in the future, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And he goes on from there. The point is, so apparently there is going to be, there was the Antiochus abomination desolation, but apparently there's going to be another abomination desolation following Christ. Now some believe Jesus is referring here to the Roman destruction of the temple complete destruction, leveling of the temple, not one stone standing on another in 70 AD, and that's possible. While others believe, and I lean this way, this refers, is still referring to the end, to the Antichrist, what he will do in the last days. So to the question, how long? We have the beginning point set, the abomination that makes desolate, and then to go along with time, times and half a time of verse 7, we're given another more specific time frame. There shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th day, period. So when you see this abomination 
of desolation, whatever it may be, I imagine it's something similar to what Antiochus did. The end will come in 1,290 days, which is about three and a half years. And if time, times, and a half time refers to years, one year plus two years plus a half a year, then broadly speaking, both these time frames can be used to describe periods that are around three and a half years. And whether this is literal or figurative, again, is debated, and I don't think it matters. Okay. But I think what's more significant, what does matter, is the messenger answers the same question with different terms. So the same guy said, the same, said these two things that seem to describe the same period, the same span. And I think he's making two points about the time of unprecedented trouble that begins with the abomination of desolation, whether it's three and a half years or not. And I think he's making the two points. First, with regards to the time, times, and half a time, three and a half times, I think he's referring to, uh, uh, refers to half of seven times. Okay, why do I say that? Because seven is often a number of completion in the Bible. We saw that in Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember back in chapter 4, when he was judged, remember he became like a little loopy and became like an animal eating grass and stuff, for seven periods of time. This was a complete uh, uh, time of period of judgment. But three and a half times seems to say that this time of trouble will be cut in half. And if I didn't have Matthew chapter 24, I wouldn't be saying this. In Matthew 24, where we already read verse 15, do you remember that? Uh, where Jesus says, he talks about the abomination of desolation as spoken of by the prophet Daniel in verse 15. And then in verse 22, he says, and in those days that began with the abomination of desolation and had not had, excuse me, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So it seems, taking Jesus' words and the time, time, and half time, and the seven, that this time of, this time of unprecedented trouble will be cut short. And this speaks of God's mercy. For the sake of the elect... God's people, he will cut short the, this time of unprecedented trouble. So the, the time frame, uh, this time frame, the three and a half times, speaks of God's mercy for his people. That's what I think. Now, I believe the second time frame, time frame, 1,290 days, focus on, focuses on the sovereignty of God. He's able to give the precise period for this time of trouble. Time, times, and half times, pretty vague. 1,290 days is spot on. It's not just a vague period of judgment, but one that is predetermined by God down to the very day when it will end. Also notice the additional figure, 1,335 days in Daniel 12.12, 12, 
which adds 45 days to the 1,290-day period and tells us that the saints will need to persevere all the way to the end of this longer period. Though the time for God uh, to complete His work may seem to have come, His people will still have to wait patiently for the end. So these two different time frames help us see both God's mercy, He will limit our trials to what we can endure. For our sake, He will cut them off. And God's sovereignty. He knows and He controls the precise number of days that this time of trouble will continue. And He knows and He will control the precise number of days your time of trouble will continue. Be clear on that. Now, we can't know when this end will come. We can't know when the... Maybe when it happens, we'll know it. I don't know. Maybe we'll be alive. Maybe we won't. I don't, I don't know. But God knows exactly when and exactly how long. We don't have to know. Therefore, the lesson for us is to trust in God's mercy when we're experiencing a trial, when we're not, and His sovereignty. He's in control. As we continue to persevere in faith until the very end, whether it's the end of history or the end of our days. And that's a good place for Daniel's vision to end. With God's mercy and sovereignty and our need for perseverance until the very end. But then comes one final verse that I think helps us understand living until the end. In verse 13, Daniel is told, But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. We need to recognize that we live in the time between the times. You know, we're, something's coming, it's been prophesied in the past, something's coming, and we're, we're seeking to live faithfully right now. And like Daniel, we're called to go our way and be faithful in the, in the present, in the task to which God has called us. And what are those tasks? Well, they're lots of them. How are we to be faithful, even and especially in times of difficulty? I think that's the focus here. Well, let me leave you with just a few scriptures that I believe highlight some of the ways we're called to live and persevere until the end. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary of doing good. Do not grow weary of doing good. Isn't that such a major temptation? especially when you reach the ripe old age of 59, right? Just kidding. I'm, you know, some of you are a little older than me, and you are saying, uh, what's he talking about? Anyway, I wish I could be 59 again. I wish I could be 50. Just kidding. Okay. When things are not going well, this is our tendency. I mean, Turn this on yourself and, and, and see if it's true. When things aren't going well for you, uh, you tend to get, I tend to get uh, very self-centered, right? Why is, why is this happening to me? What do you mean, do this for someone else? I'm, I'm focused on me. This is terrible. It's happening to me. It's often hard to do good for others, but if we can take our eye, when we're experiencing difficulties especially, but if we can take our eyes off our own selves and do good for others, our troubles are often lightened, our weariness can lift, and things are put into perspective. So 
in your weariness, or do not grow weary in doing good, no matter what your circumstances. To the church in Corinth, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When we're facing trials, it can be difficult to stand firm. I mean, the trial is sort of the point from one perspective is it's to knock us over. It's hard to stand firm, to continue working as unto the Lord. But be encouraged, stand firm, your labor is not in vain. Sometimes we think our labor isn't, nobody knows what I'm doing. Well, God knows. You are, as Jesus said, uh, storing up treasures in heaven. And finally, the author of Hebrews writes, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In times of trials, there's no better place to look but to the cross, to Jesus Christ as our example. And if he could endure the agonies of the cross, Agonies far greater than anything anyone has ever experienced. No one else in the history of the world, no matter what they've experienced, had the sins of you and I and all of humanity placed upon them, experiencing the full wrath of God. If he could endure the agonies of the cross for the sake of the joy that was set before him at the right hand of the Father, we too can be motivated by the joy that is set before us in heaven. I mean, really, we need to have this perspective before us. Maybe, maybe this is the verse. Uh, Psalm 1611. Write this down. When you're experiencing trials or not, it says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We get a taste of that now when we live in relationship with God, but in eternity we'll be blown away by it. The joy, the pleasures forevermore that we'll experience. When we, upon our resurrection to everlasting life, enter God's presence, no matter what difficulties, no matter what difficulties we've experienced in this life, it will have been worth it. I promise. The Word of God promises. This is the crucial lesson that I believe Daniel has sought to drive home from the beginning. This world is not our home. We are like Daniel living in a foreign land. We are elect exiles. We're chosen by God, but we must live for His purposes and for His glory in this world as His representatives. I know we'd rather be with Him in the fullness of glory now, but that's not His wisdom. That's not His plan. We have to live in this world now, a world with fiery furnaces and lion's dens, a world of violence and wars and rumors of wars, a world with beastly rulers and contemptuous conceited kings and kingdoms that persecute and oppress the people of God. But we must daily remember that we're just passing through on our way to our glorious inheritance in Christ Jesus. And as we pass through this fallen, broken world, no matter our circumstances, our task is simply to persevere until the end as we represent our one true king in the best and worst of times. 
bringing glory and honor and praise to the Lord Jesus by testifying with our word and deed to his greatness, to his grace, to his mercy in our lives. And really, if there were no worst of times, we wouldn't be able to fully do that. Isn't that true? Oh, your life is so great. You never have any trouble. Of course you love God. Well, wait a minute. Did you know this about me? Did you know this struggle I had to go through and God was there with me? Without the worst of times, our witness would not be the same. And when the end finally comes for us, whether at the return of Christ or our own death, when our earthly troubles are no more, then at last we too will hear our Lord say, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Isn't that uh, worth, don't you want to hear that? Similar to the well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's so real, that it's so, uh, it acknowledges the reality of the experience of this life. Lord, I thank you, though, that we can walk through it with you, that we're not alone, and we have a future, an eternal future in your presence, filled with joy, filled with uh, pleasures forevermore, Father. I thank you for that. I pray that we will trust in you. Lord, we'll trust in your mercy as we experience trials and suffering in this world. We'll trust in your sovereignty that you, that you do know what you're doing, even though it may not seem like it at times, Father. That's what faith is, Father, having to trust when it doesn't seem like it for us. So I pray you would give each one of us an understanding of your great mercy and sovereignty, and we would be able to trust in that and give us the ability to persevere through whatever, whatever comes in hope of that eternal uh, life in your presence. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, as I close this out with one last song in worship, why don't you guys stand with me? <laughs>